0: Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink, and this is The Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the December edition of The Bookseller Podcast bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858 and in this edition i will be talking to the winner of the booker prize bernardine everisto and the winner of the bollinger everyman woodhouse prize for comic fiction nina stibby we'll be looking back at the books of 2019 with philip jones alice o'keefe and caroline sanderson andy rossiter from rossiter books will be our guest for meet the indie and we'll play out with a clip from the beast of buckingham palace by david walliams
1: with one hand, she whipped off the sheet to reveal.
0: First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from The Bookseller. Hello. Hi. And with me, as he is every month, is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for coming, everyone. 2019, a good year in books... Philip, start us off on that subject.
2: Yeah, I think so. Another year of print book sales growth, uh, which is always, uh, I think, indicative of a wider sign of health within the book trade. I think when booksellers are happy, particularly high street booksellers, then we all feel good about the industry. And of course, it's been a big uh, moment for Waterstones and its MD, James Daunt, taking over at Barnes & Noble in the States. Mm -hmm. So another kind of validation that his strategy of turnaround at that big book chain has, has worked really well and is now hopefully translating Overseas, So yeah, a big big year in that sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Wasn't without its controversies?
2: Yep, we had the Booker Prize, uh, which went to not one winner but two winners, which I think is a controversy that we'll, we'll rumble on. And clearly the people behind the Booker weren't very happy about it. And I, I think it's not played out particularly well for the authors, I think, who, who've kind of had to share that prize.
0: Mm-hmm. And they were, of course, Margaret Atwood with The Testaments and Bernadine Evaristo with Girl, Woman, Other...
2: Yeah, who, uh, you know, lately got into a bit of a, a fight with the BBC because she was othered by a BBC presenter who who described her as uh, uh, Mark Atwood won the booker and another author. Mm. And uh, I think that's indicative of the fact that it was a shared win, which took away, I think, some of the limelight from that book, which otherwise most people I talked to said should have won outright. So a bit of a sort of tarnish on that prize, I think.
0: Yeah, completely. I was thinking anybody should be banned from having an opinion unless they've read both. I have read both. <laughs> they are both very good winners. But yeah, I think, you know, should have picked one. Yeah. I'd pick Bernadine Evaristo. But, you know, anyway, should just pick one.
2: But it has started a kind of whole conversation about prizes, which I think is probably quite useful mm-hmm. with the Turner Prize this week, obviously awarding it to the to the four artists, not picking one. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is a big, I think, debate to be had about the usefulness of prizes and um, whether we should be selecting winners from, uh, you know, what is a, essentially a subjective conversation.
0: I do think as someone who's been shortlisted for things and never won anything, Satanam Sanghera made this point, and I completely agree with him, that it would make you feel kind of like even worse if you were one of the losing authors. But uh, and they like hadn't just picked one person. <laughs> it got like they couldn't decide on one. So then it makes the rest of you that don't get picked at all feel even worse
2: about it. Yeah imagine they picked four but left one <laughs> on the sidelines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: oh, God, that's awful, isn't it? That's something else to worry about as you're waiting for the announcement. What if they pick the other five <laughs> as yeah. joint winners and Everyone just... else is
2: good. Part of them yours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alice, what were your book highlights of the year? Your sort of personal favourites?
3: Oh, Kathy, that is just an impossible question to ask me. Uh, I mean, every month I have to pick uh, one book of the month. And unlike the Book of Judges, I managed to do that. <laughs> um, but I also pick um, sort of four editor's choices, which generally speaking could have been my book of the month. I just have to pick one. So it's a really cruel question. I mean, I've, I've managed uh, to follow the brief today and I've chosen three out of literally hundreds that I've probably read. Um, and I've actually gone for one nonfiction And I hardly ever, ever get to read um, non-fiction because obviously my day job is all about fiction. But this one really stood out. is She Said by Jodie Cantor and Megan Touhay. And I'm sure most people are probably quite familiar with those two names. Uh, Those are the journalists working at the New York Times who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and won the Pulitzer Prize for it. And this is basically the story behind that story in the paper and it shows you the months of work they did the meticulous picking through ndas persuading people to talk and then persuading them to go on the record it works on two levels really you you understand how investigative journalism is done at the top level and what goes into it and not just those Two particular journalists, but their editors and the people in charge running the paper. And of course, it's also the story of how Weinstein operated, how he was allowed to operate by the people around him, how his behaviour was covered up. And I have to say, it reads like a thriller. It is so suspenseful. Mm -hmm. It's edge of your seat stuff. And I literally couldn't put it down. I was parking my children in front of CVVs and just letting them, you know, watch as much as they wanted and giving them fish fingers for the third time that week because I just literally couldn't put it down. I carried it around with me. Um, So really highly recommended.
0: Oh, well that's very good and that's good news for me actually because I have it at home (gasps) and um, I've been saving it for when work is done. You will love it. I promise you. It's brilliant. Thank you. And what about a novel on your more familiar terms? Yes,
3: so it was so difficult. I mean, honestly as I say, I could have picked any of my of my 12 books of the year, but I've gone uh, for two. The first one I'm going to talk about actually missed new titles because it was one of those books that very annoyingly for me is crashed into the schedules quite late because at the bookseller we were, Caroline and I, four months ahead. Uh, of publication. And I remember opening my book post one morning and seeing this proof and shrieking because I recognised the name. She is again, actually a journalist um, for the New York Times and then checking the AI and seeing that it was coming out in two months time and I'd missed it for new titles. And it is Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy bredessa Ackner. I hope I've said that right. And it's just... Brilliant. It sits in New York in Manhattan and it opens with Toby Fleischman, who is newly divorced from his, as he comes to describe her, nightmare wife. Um, and he's entering this exciting new world of dating apps and all these women wanting to sleep with him. And he's free of his wife and he's only got his children part time. So he's getting stuck in, in more (laughs) ways than one. And then suddenly, very inconveniently, his ex-wife, Rachel, disappears. And she leaves him with the children all the time. And he's got this very busy, important job. Um, He's a doctor in hospital. um, And he's juggling all this. And he's got to find her as well. well. We know where she's gone. And as you're reading, you can sense another story below the one that Toby is telling you. And sure enough, sort of, over halfway through the novel towards the end everything is turned on its head and you realise that everything you've read is not actually the case and this is such a clever book it's so funny she really skewers a certain kind of social strata in Manhattan but she does it so well it's so sharply observed about women and men and marriage and divorce it's very funny and I just whipped through it I mean it really is a kind of blistering satirical novel and it's
0: also such a page turner. Excellent, another good recommendation actually my friend and our later guest Nina Stibby is always telling me to read it because she says it's very funny. You've got to read it, honestly yeah. you will love it. And there aren't enough funny books, I'm always yes, looking for funny it books. it is so. really funny. There we go well I feel it's like, great. I mean you're sorting me out for my <laughs> Christmas reading. Caroline, what about you? What would you recommend?
4: I didn't get to read She Said because when I was covering it it was still sort of embargoed so I'm, I've definitely sold that one to me. Mine are, and, and I, I just like to reiterate that this is cruelty to (laughs) this whole process but um I'm going to do them in sort of chronological publishing order I think so back in February I covered the most in fact it was my book of the month as well most extraordinary memoir war doctor surgery on the front line by David Knott um this man is an absolute hero and By goodness, do we need heroes, I think. Um, So for the last 25 years, he's been taking unpaid leave from his day job in the NHS to work as a surgeon in the world's war and disaster zones. So this book covers all the places that he'd worked in from his posting to Sarajevo in the early 90s during the Yugoslav war to um, more recent work in Syria. And it is quite harrowing in places. It propels you through a whole... Well, a whole variety of emotions, but you end up with this extraordinarily profound admiration for the work that he does uh, and those who work alongside him as well. So it's a gripping read. Um, One of the things that I also admired about it was that he's incredibly honest he says, I've travelled the world in search of trouble. It's a kind of addiction, a pull I find hard to resist. So mm. he's very sort of honest about why he does it, which I found sort of extraordinary as well. But yes, True Hero of Our Times, coming out and paperback back in January, actually. So that's very much one to get if you haven't read it. Then I picked a book which was pipped to my Book of the Month choice in July by Lisa Tadeo's Three Women, which is also an extraordinary read. Um, But I've picked On Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons by Laura Cumming. And talking of books that you couldn't put down, that was absolutely the case for this. It's a kind of book that you cancel a weekend for. You know, you just you start reading it on Friday night, and you, you just find every moment that you can for it. It's a family memoir, and it draws you deep into the mystery of what happened to the author's mother um, after she was kidnapped from a Lincolnshire beach in 1929, and um, after five agonising days, she was retrieved. So it unravels the mystery of why she was kidnapped, but it also it's an extraordinary portrait of. This tiny little seaside place. It's a place I know actually because I grew up not far from Lincolnshire in the coast down. I used to go. So it sort of spoke to me in that sense, but it's a portrait of life in a seaside village before the war. And Laura Cumming being the um, she's an art critic for The Observer. She's also woven in photographs and artworks, which sort of really complement the narrative. And I did write the words: if it's not prize shortlisted, I'll be astonished. And it's since gone on to be prize shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford and now for the Costa Biography Award. So I'm quite chuffed about that. That's excellent. Philip, how about you? What were your highlights of the year?
2: This. I'm going to go children's because uh, we haven't mentioned that yet. and I really enjoyed Fing by David Williams. I love reading with my eight-year-old. And uh, he went down a, a sort of age group and um, just laugh out loud funny. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed reading it. And, and then the eight-year-old kind of read it on his own, which is also a joy. And also uh, in the same sort of vein was Charlie Changes Into a Chicken by the agent Sam Copeland. Oh, we've read <laughs> sort of raucous, laugh out loud funny and a completely new and I thought wonderfully authentic voice. Again, the acid test was my eight-year-old. Would he pick it up on his own and and read it? And he did, which is um, perfect. And then I would say we had two big event books, didn't we, during the year? Mm -hmm. Maybe more than two, but two ones that I recollect now. One was Margaret Atwood, The Testaments, which, of course, has already been mentioned, which delivered. Uh, I thought, um, and was a great continuation of The Handmaid's Tale and deserved everything it got, both in terms of sales and uh, accolades. And then the other was The Secret Commonwealth by Philip Pullman, mm-hmm. which was, a, I felt, a revelation in terms of moving that story on absolutely. after the original three books. And that, allied to the BBC TV series, which she's showing at the moment, just made the whole year a bit kind of Pullmanesque. Mm, and Absolutely, uh, yeah. I've read all that that aloud to my son
0: and there's a load of swearing in it. Yeah, Which, I mean, I really enjoy. I, and it, it enab- I do swear quite a lot at home. My husband disapproves a bit. But it, it enabled me to say, don't say that at school, Matt. After I'd read out the swearing, I said, and if you do say it at school and someone says, where did you learn that? Say, from Philip Pullman, not from
2: my mum. <laughs> well, one of my favourite moments of the year, I think we'd, we'd listed um, the book as a children's book, I think, on, on social media. Uh, quite rightly so, because I think that's how it's categorised. But then Philip Pullman tweeted back saying, children's question mark. Yeah. Uh, Because he is obviously very um, aware and concerned that his books don't get labelled and then don't get read by everyone because they are characterised solely for childrens. which that book in particular clearly isn't.
0: No, I mean, it was an exhilarating experience and we both really enjoyed it. I do. I mean, I think one of the great joys of reading with a child is when you find something that you both equally Mm. um, enjoy, you know, 46 year old woman, 10 year old boy. Mm. And we were both very much in it. So... Yeah. Mm. that was great um i i would say i mean i'm with the book of judges actually probably on my two favorite books of the year as in margaret atwood's the testaments and girl woman other by bernardine if
4: you're asking me to pick a novel i think alice uh, very kindly picked a piece of nonfiction, and i haven't picked any fiction at all but if i were to pick one i enjoy again that for me was a page turner it's so brilliantly done the different voices in it it's so extraordinary um a
0: woman of her yeah it's, I mean it's just wonderful it's completely exhilarating isn't it and yet she never loses I think I love those narratives where there's lots of voices it's a I call it a relay narrative where the action passes from one character to another like a baton does but often the downside is that, that it can spin out a bit but she just never loses the well the it keeps threads. you on your
4: toes but then I, I like that I, yeah I like me that too and I much. thought it
0: was a real page turner again it was one of those I was trying to um, I, was <laughs> I said burnt food because I was trying to read it
4: whilst <laughs> cooking yeah. you know that kind of Children thing. are older now, so I don't exactly have to put them in front of CBDS anymore. But um, even so, and it's
0: yes. quite in her back, It's quite a big thing to have in one hand, as just sort of stirring and not looking. Yes. <laughs> it's great fun. Yes. I do want to throw in a debut, uh, which I just loved as well, which is the Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, which has oh, just been yeah. uh, shortlisted for the Costa First Novel, um, and I just think that is a, a spectacular novel and really takes you places um tell me what you would like so under my christmas tree now i'd like basically all the books that you've mentioned that i haven't read tell me what you would like if i could be your book santa what would you like under your christmas tree on christmas day alice what would you like well
3: i'm going to ask for non-fiction please Mm kathy and uh As Caroline often says, celebrity memoirs can be a bit hit and miss, Um, but I have heard such good things about Elton John's me. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, And these words particularly keep cropping up in the reviews, refreshingly candid and hugely entertaining, which means it must be an absolute gossip fest. And um, I just think it sounds wonderful. It's a bit of escapism, which we all need, a bit of like a nose through celebrity lifestyle. So I would like that, please. Mm -hmm. What about you, Caroline?
4: I, I, Yes, Alice, yes. <laughs> Utterly irresistible. Well, I have a bit of a tradition at Christmas. It's one of those funny things that because people know what you do, they're quite scared of buying you books, which is a mm. bit of a shame, really. Mm. Um, but I have a bit of a tradition of asking for what's commonly called graphic novels, but can be graphic memoir. If there's a new Posey Simmons, that's me sorted, basically. But um, the bookseller ran a recent interview with um, a graphic artist and writer called Isabel Greenberg, who's written a book which I think qualifies as a graphic novel called Glass Town, which is about the Brontes and the imaginative world that they created. So I'd like that, please. And I've just recently discovered that the author of the Little Library Year, <gasps> recipes and reading to suit each occasion, which I know is a favourite of yours. Kathy. Oh yes, Kate Young, the author, actually lives in Stroud, where I live. So I met her and um, had another proper look at the book. And now I'd like that as well, please.
0: Because there's, there's she has two books. I like them so much. Look, I'm unable <laughs> to control myself. They're so good. And then there's two books: the Little Library Cookbook yes. and then the Little Library Year. Well, and they're both wonderful.
4: Partly on your recommendation. Oh, yeah, really and well. again, it's, yeah. absolutely.
0: You don't. I mean, if if you want to cook that's fine mm. but equally you can just lie down on the sofa and read mm. them for the bliss and I joy I think therefore
4: when the kitchen is closed on about December the yeah, I
0: can really imagine reading them whilst just eating a load of biscuits <laughs> yes. or something. There's <laughs> like something, she writes about books like Little Women, like mm. Anna of Green Gables, and there's something really joyous about reading the book. It feels a little bit like rereading those mm. books, which I also Oh, well, like well can I too. add that to my you list? You can, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to gift you the extra. <laughs> Everybody reading can here. Have that. I'm really enjoying this books. Santa role. <laughs> uh,
2: Philip, what do you need me to come and sprinkle under your Christmas tree? Of course, people never buy me books anymore, so it's... Uh it's all very sad. Um, I'm just reading A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towles, the American author. I would quite mm. like his backlist. Oh, right, yeah. Because he is a brilliant, brilliant writer. I'd like the latest illustrated Harry Potter, The Goblet of Fire. Mm. Bloomsbury does sometimes send me a copy of those, but they're so big and hefty that I can't cycle home with it. So I would quite like it delivered by an elf under yeah. the tree. And um, I'd like a hardback edition of *Madeline Miller's Circe, because mm. I read it as a proof. And... Uh, Proofs do degrade slightly faster than hardback, so I'd like a proper version, please
0: very specific, right, well I'm going to wave a little wand the other thing as well, I still think this is the best present, it's my favourite present as a child still my favourite present, now, I really love it when someone gives me a book token yeah. <laughs> I just find it so joyous yes. so, so um, and I've got one at the moment for £15 and I feel very very excited about what I'm going to, it's a Waterstones voucher actually that somebody mm. gave me, a little card, and I feel very very excited about what I'm going to do with
4: my £15 well, it, it never pulls does it, you know, you think we're, we're all lucky enough to be deluged with books but actually just being given a book as a gift or going as you say going and choosing one going into a bookshop with
0: with like dedicated funds and then just being able to pick whatever you want for a non-work related
2: reason is just completely joyous There's so many to choose from, aren't there?
0: There are lots to choose from. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I'm so grateful that you would come, give us your expertise and allow me to play fantasy secret Santa. Um, I really wish I could just gift you all those things. Obviously, I mean, I can't really, but there you go. (laughs) I wish I could. Maybe I'll try. Maybe I will wave a wand. But thank you very much, everyone, for coming in. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, because it is December, in a spirit of festive abundance, we have two author interviews this month, both prize-winning novelists. We're going to be talking to Bernardine Evaristo and we're going to be talking after that to Nina Stibbe. Bernadine Evaristo is the author of eight books of fiction and verse fiction, and she's a long-time activist for inclusion in the arts. Her most recent novel is The Astonishing Girl, Woman, Other, for which she won the Booker Prize. Bernadine, thanks so much for coming to talk to it's us. It's great to
5: be here. What did it feel like to win the Booker Prize? Oh, it was just incredible. I, I don't think i it's really sunk in yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been incredibly busy ever since. <laughs> um, but every so often I reflect back on life before the Booker mm-hmm. and what the Booker meant to me. And I just can't believe that i won it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It is a dream come true, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's the truth of it. And it's such a game changer in terms of my career. Mm-hmm. You know, the book's the same. It's the book that it was, you know, before the 14th of October. But the context around it has changed. Yeah. And that's actually, it's a really exciting thing for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think it will sink in? Do you think there'll come a time when you just wake up and just, oh, yeah. yeah just last you know. <laughs>
5: Um I think so probably mm-hmm. you know um I'm I'm in the sort of throes of it at the moment yeah. and I'm doing a lot of events so I'm meeting people and everybody's very excited yeah. um so I think eventually it, it it will sink in but um you know I don't think I'll ever take it for granted. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to have received it. And at this stage in my career, you know, um, I'm not 21. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not 31. I'm not 41. Uh, (laughs) I'm not 51, actually. And, um, you know, to have been in the arts for 40 years Mm -hmm. and then to to sort of walk away with this incredible prize... um, I think it's it's always going to be very 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 special for me.
0: The book's the same, you say. Let's talk about the book. I just thought it was astonishing. It's such an immersive reading experience, and it was a real kind of page turner for me. I didn't want to put it down. I burnt food well, as I <laughs> sort of balancing it while stirring and not stirring very well. How did the book? How did the book come to you? How did it start off for you? Yeah,
5: it was. Um, the truth is, actually, I was writing a short story for the radio mm-hmm. and I decided I was going to create four black British women characters and it became a a short story in verse because my background a long time ago was in poetry. And one of the characters kind of took hold with me, with my imagination, and I thought... And she's called Carol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think she was called Carol at that time, actually. And I thought, let me see if I can write her story. And so I began to write her story. And I can tell at the beginning of a work of fiction, whether or not it's exciting me, whether I think there's potential with it. And with Carol, she did excite me. She's a young woman. She's growing up in... Peckham. She's got Nigerian immigrant parents. She's very working class. Goes to a very um, under-resourced inner-city school, and she ends up going to Oxford and um, enters the corporate world. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't read a character like that in in British fiction from a black perspective, and I just I just liked the journey I was taking her on. And her mother is called Bumi, and her mother came into Carol's sections because I was going back to Carol's childhood, and I really liked Bumi as a character. So <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I decided to develop her. And in a way, that's how the novel grew. You know, one character would um, have their story and then somebody else would appear in their story. And then they would have their own sections. Because the thing about the novel is there are 12 primarily black British women, um, but they each have their own section. Mm -hmm. But it's not a book of short stories. It is a novel. Mm. Um, And they're all kind of interconnected. Um, So each woman has a devoted chapter. Actually, there are four mother-daughter relationships and I think that came about because I was either writing a mother or a daughter and then, you know, the daughter or the mother would appear in their section and then they would interest me enough for me to then give them their own sections. Part of the fun of the read, I think, is, you know, you're reading
0: along, very much enjoying it and slightly at the same time in the back of your head wondering how this woman's going to connect to the other people. Sometimes it's quite an obvious connection, isn't it? But sometimes they're a slight little game. So as you're reading a bit, you don't know where the person fits. And then later on, it's like, ah,
5: that's yes. where they fit in. Yes, and I, it was it was a very organic process. And I did think at the end, I wondered if some of the clues were too obscure, you know. But actually, one of the sort of part of the feedback that I've got about this novel is that people have really enjoyed the sort of puzzle of it, if you like. Oh, yeah. The fact that... They're working out or they're surprised at who is appearing where in the story. And I, I don't know if when I began it, really, whether or not I wanted it to all the women to interconnect in some way. And they do. Mm-hmm. You know, there are X degrees of separation. Um but that's what emerged. And, uh, you know, when I with my creative writing process, something happens organically and then I register that's what's happening and then I start to do it more intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I did actually sew in some of those connections at a later stage, you know, sort of like in a redraft, because I wanted them all to be part of this sort of network of black British womanhood.
0: I mean, I had like a sort of a jigsaw quality, which is something I really enjoy in books. You know, I'm enjoying the piece of the jigsaw that I'm looking at and then, also wondering how it's going to fit with the other things. So very much a fan of that element. Is that usual for your process, that your works emerge organically? I was teaching at um, one of the Arvon centres recently and your novel Inverse Lara was on the shelf. So I reread that, which was a great treat. Is that usually your process, that you Uh, sort of
5: have an idea and follow your nose? Yes, I think so. I'm not really a plot-driven writer, although actually with this novel... There are plots in there, mm. but they're kind of really embedded and so almost sort of hidden. Um, my my work tends to be character-driven. I might start with a character or I might start with an idea and then I see where it takes me. And as with Go Woman Other, at a certain stage... I then begin to more consciously structure the work. But I don't, for example, plot a novel in advance. I'm completely incapable of doing that. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I might know the ending, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a sense, the characters start to talk to me as I write them. So I have an idea for, you know, whichever character I'm working on. And then it's the act of writing that reveals who they are and what their stories are. Mm -hmm. And... I know that when I write fiction and I write characters that I have to make them complex and flawed, give them dreams, make sure they don't get what they want, at least initially, and give them agency and all those things I do. Unconsciously, because I've been writing for a very long time, and it's this book. It's my eighth book, so as soon as I start writing a character, I automatically think about what they want and what and what the obstacles are against them, and that creates the tension. I think for the um, for the reader. Tell us a
0: bit about um, your activist work. Tell us a bit about, um, you wrote a quick read called Hello Mum, which is wonderful. Uh, tell us a bit about some of that work and how you've f- fitted it in over the years with your own creative Yeah, practice. I see it as
5: the two separate strands of my career. Well, there are three, really. There's the sort of teaching, because I teach at Brunel University London. Um, and then there are my books, which are the main focus of my life, to be honest. And then there's the activism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm somebody who has set up various arts inclusion initiatives, over the years, going back to setting up um, a theatre company called Theatre of Black Women in the 1980s, which was the first of its kind. And the reason we did that was because there was uh, no work for us at that time, and we thought, well, we'll set up, we'll do our own thing. Mm-hmm. And I have continued with that kind of can-do attitudes, that sort of enterprising spirit, if you like, um, ever since. You know, I believe in community, and I I know that I have to look after, in particular, writers of colour although not exclusively or artists of colour and if I can set up initiatives that make a difference for people then that's what I do but on the other hand there's my creative work which is quite in a sense political in that I want to write those stories that haven't been told especially stories about the African diaspora and that's Mm -hmm. what I do so I guess there is a connection between the two but I do compartmentalise them as well
0: Do you have to compartmentalise them as well to sort of
5: get the work done. Do you have a do you have a rigorous process where you write at particular
0: times and activist at other times or does it not work <laughs> well? Well like
5: I wish it was kind of <laughs> it's kind of compartmentalized to a certain extent, but then there's email, you know, and everything just <laughs> yeah. merges together. If I'm working on a novel, then that's usually I'm usually I'm always working on one book at a time. I never work on two two major works at a time, but I might have little side projects that I'm working on. And the activism is kind of ongoing. In the background, you know, Um, if I accept a commission to do something, for example, there's a commission that I've accepted that I need to deliver and I know when I'm going to write it. And if they ask me in, in advance anything about it, I'm, I can't answer that because I haven't set my head to even think about it. And I can't really tell them I haven't started thinking about it because they will think it's too late, you know. But I know how I work. I know that I can produce something very quickly and it's not going to, the quality of the work is not going to suffer. But yes, I have to, um, because I juggle lots of different things mentally, I have to put things in their boxes and deal with them when I can. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the reality is that everything kind of gets a bit mixed up sometimes. Mm-hmm. I know you're a
0: huge supporter of other... Writers. Um, I wondered whether earlier on in the programme we were talking about Christmas and people were talking about what they would like, to, you know, what they would recommend as Christmas gifts. I wonder if
5: you'd like to recommend a few books for our listeners that they should. Yeah, there's some really lovely books out there. There's a writer called Roger Robinson who's a poet and I don't think enough people know his work and he's written a book called A Portable Paradise published by People Tree Press. It's his fourth collection and he actually writes about um, the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Um, but he writes about masculinity, he's from Trinidad, and he also writes about the uh, premature birth of his son. And so the, the collection is really wide-ranging, mm-hmm. and it's just the most exquisite beautiful poetry collection, and it's on the T.S. Eliot Prize shortlist, I'm very happy to say. I hope he wins it. Then there are writers such as Diana Evans, who published Ordinary People. I think people should read that. Mm-hmm. I think Candice Carty-Williams' Queenie is just such a great book. Sarah Collins's The Confessions of Franny Langton, is a great book. And these are all my peers, if you like, who are also black British women writing books and adding to the sort of very small canon of our works in mm-hmm. this country. Um, I, I do read widely, but I tend to promote the books I feel people are not necessarily going to come across. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those are works that I think people won't be disappointed by.
0: That's great. Well, um, hopefully everyone will run out and buy even more copies. The Confessions of Franny Langton was my one too. Oh, great. So uh, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful novel. Thank you so much for coming to see us. And thank you for talking to us with such generosity about your process and about the way you get the work done Mm. and just all power to you as you carry on. Thanks very much. What a pleasure it was to talk to Bernadine Everisto, And now we have another prize winner. Nina Stibby is the author of Love Nina, which was adapted by Nick Hornby into a BBC series. And then she started to write novels. Um, Nina, thank you for coming to talk to us. Thank you for having me. This novel writing career, you wrote three novels, Man at the Helm, Paradise Lodge, Reasons to be Cheerful. Now, they were all, weren't they, nominated for the prize, the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction. Yes,
6: they were. All shortlisted. And um, yes, and the last one, uh, Reasons to be Cheerful, won it. <laughs> I think that's what we're driving at, isn't we it? We are. So it wasn't a yes, case of three times a bridesmaid and never a bride. No, thank goodness. No, I was a bit worried about that because I thought I'd just have to stop writing. <laughs> um, but no, it did win. And I didn't think it would, actually, because it's it's sort of a trilogy, although they all stand alone. <laughs> but I did think, oh, well, I can't win. But then I thought, well, everyone's made such a fuss, haven't they, about women not winning things that maybe I would. And I did. (laughs) Anyway, and also what was interesting was, so I won it this year and it was a rollover year because the year before they hadn't awarded the prize at all because shouldn't really bring this up, but anyway, there weren't enough lols in the nominated books, apparently. So they rather controversially said they weren't going to award the prize at all. And everybody was very, very cross, including me, because we all sort of felt that, you know, an organisation that's supposed to champion and support comedy writers to say none of us were writing any lols. So, yes, it was a rollover year. So I got double the Bollinger and double the Pigs. Tell us about the Pigs. Yes, well, one of the prizes um, is a Gloucester Old Spot pig, a real one. Um, and if you win the prize, you go to Hay-on-Wye Literature Festival and you are presented with this pig. And I got two pigs. Actually, we're saying I got two pigs, but on the day, one of the pigs I was going to have went into labour. Yeah, so I couldn't have the two pigs, so I only got the man pig. But it was huge. Are they it, a couple? I think they were a married couple, Yeah. The two pigs. But I only got the one whose real name was Patches. But part of the deal is he is now called Reasons to Be Cheerful because part of the prize is the pig is named after your book. Brilliant, but you don't take the pig home or anything. No, but you do have visiting rights. So I have now got a pig in r- around the Hay-on-Wye area, <laughs> and he he was amazing. And it was really funny because I was told that you the pig's coming because the pig arrives at Hay-on-Wye and you pose with it in your best dress, and you know you pat it or or you know pick it up. But it was huge. And um, James Nocte, who is somehow involved with this whole thing and had interviewed me on stage at Hay, had said, you've got to play with it. You know, don't be afraid of it. We need a good photo. Get down among the hay, <laughs> as it were. And, and I really did. And I think the farmer was a bit shocked. <laughs> Because I flung my arms around it and he was saying, oh, you know, be careful, be careful. Anyway, so there there you go. I was awarded with this beautiful pig.
0: Tell us a bit about reasons to be cheerful. I'm holding the paperback in my hand. So the paperback's now coming out in January. A lovely, vibrant, uh, yellowy, orangey
6: cover. Yes. yes, thanks for describing the cover, Cathy. That's lovely. <laughs> um, it is yellow. Um, yes, the book is a comedy coming of age set in the 1980s. It's the, the narrator, the protagonist is Lizzie Vogel. She's just turned 18. She's got this terrible menace of a mother. It's a bit of a romance, but it's also an adventure in that she ends up working for a really horrible person and she takes matters into her own hands and she breaks the law and all sorts of comedy and poignant things unfold. Mm. And I think it's funny. I hope it's funny. It is funny. Is it? Yeah. Hooray! Lots of very good jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it made the judges laugh out loud. It made them lol. Thank God it made them lol. Um, you've had a very interesting year otherwise
6: as well, haven't you? A very nice yes, writerly year. Tell I us have. a bit about that. I've had a great year. Well, that book came out in March, but also in March, I was asked to interview Helen Fielding and David Sedaris together, mm. all three of us, mm-hmm. on stage at the British Library. Uh, the British Library do these wonderful events, and this one was about about diaries and diary-keeping and, and to talk about their um, their diaries that they keep there. And it was just wonderful to meet them. And to see David Sedaris would be wonderful, to see Helen Fielding would be wonderful, but to see them interacting on stage was bliss. It really was fantastic. It's uh-huh. very, very funny. And they're both very funny and very nice, just as nice as you'd want them to be, just as witty and clever. Yeah, I've had a great year um, going to book festivals as well, and I've met lots of exciting authors and I've been on stage with lots of exciting authors such as Lyssa Evans, a great comedy writer mm-hmm. and Brian Bilston. And um, I've also met the comedy writing legend Sue Lim, who I was on stage with at Stroud Book Festival. So I've had a, a really good sort of comedy book writing fun year and I actually also went to hear a recording of Marion Key's, Radio 4 mm-hmm. series that was on fairly recently and met her as well. So
0: She's a very funny woman and a very, very nice woman. She's very funny
6: and I never stop saying it. I think she just should be on Radio 4 all the time. Mm-hmm. They should dump some of the old ones and get her on. <laughs> <laughs> dump the old ones and get well, her on. You know, some more women's voices would be nice and particularly hers because she is so funny and she's such a good, generous, honest person. So, yes. Um, yeah, it's been a really fantastic year I mean apart from all the awful things that have been happening let's not forget those (laughs) but let's forget those but I've been yeah, let's just focus on the the good, the good, yes,
0: yes, the personal has been good,
6: yeah, on the whole, yeah,
0: yes, so you obviously enjoy getting out and about a bit, how do you balance
6: your your writing with all the, the all these activities? Do you have a plan, do you have a process, do you have a routine? Well, it's difficult when a book's just come out because, as you know, you have to go out and about and meet people and do podcasts and interviews and stuff, so it can be hard, but when I'm at home and I'm settled, and nobody really wants to speak to me anymore. I do try and get up and write in the morning. That's my top tip to anybody. And people don't want to know that they're morning people because they'd much rather pretend that they're nighttime people. (laughs) Um, But I am a morning person, it turns out, sadly. And so I get up and I get on with it. And then sort of by tea time I've usually achieved something.
0: And tell us about Christmas because you wrote that very nice book called An Almost Perfect Christmas yes. which I must say did did help me because I'm a total Scrooge really when it comes to Christmas but it, your book did help me have a better attitude about yeah, Christmas. Yeah I think
6: that's really interesting about that book because it's just a little dinky little book isn't it and it, I think it did turn on a lot of Scrooges to Christmas. I think partly because I wasn't too twee about it and I admitted how awful it can be and also my main message was make it Christmassy but don't try too hard yeah so yeah I like Christmas I like it a lot because I just like the idea of people having a bit of time off work Mm -hmm. of course that's not the case for everybody but um, I like that you can shut the door and just make lots of cakes and things like that I do love that and I do like buying presents I don't like getting them as much because you never (laughs) you never get anything very nice do you (laughs) to be honest if I could just buy my own presents, but I don't. But I do like buying presents. I'm very fussy about buying presents. I will only buy the perfect gift. As you know, Kathy, because I've bought you a couple of perfect you, you bought me the best present I've ever had yeah. ever recently. That was a book.
0: That was a book, yeah. The Roasting Tin book, yes, which she, I highly I bought, recommend. I bought her the Roasting Tin Changed book. my life. Um, to... What would you recommend that people buy for people this Christmas, books-wise? What do you think books-wise, would be nice under I people's trees? I my, think
6: my top two would be Jonathan Coe's uh, Middle England. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course has just been shortlisted for a prize, hasn't it? the Costa I the Costa think. novel yeah yes that's a lovely book it's very very funny and compassionate but clear sighted and fair as he always is he's he's a very fair but funny man can I
0: tell you what I really want to know about that yeah so I really enjoyed that novel in it one of the characters went on a speed awareness course yes sometime later when I was on a speed awareness course yes. and it was so boring yeah. I mean I do admit I was speeding so so I had to take the pain but it was so unbelievably dull to get through it I just kept thinking how I could make a piece of fiction out of it yeah. and then I thought I bet Don. Jonathan Coe went on a speedy, he did. speed awareness course. Did he? You know that. He did. He, really that. did. Yeah. he
6: and I did a little thing together and he admitted it Yeah. in front of other people. I'm not just ratting <laughs> on him. He actually did. But um, I, I, please tell me this is going to be actually on the podcast. You're talking about being on a speed awareness course. <laughs> it must be. That, that's your Christmas present to everybody. So Jonathan Coe's Middle England is an absolute treat and a really proper good read. Also, I would recommend, not for the lols, but for a really brilliant novel, is um, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again, Mm -hmm. which is the uh, sequel to Olive Kitteridge, which came out a few years ago. It is brilliant. I'm sure everybody's heard of it and knows about it, but I really would recommend it. I think it's out in Hardback at the moment. It's such a beautiful book as well. It's got lovely yellow endpapers and it just looks nice. It looks very Christmassy somehow. Also, cookbooks are always really mm. lovely presents. I love getting them. That's about the one present you could get me that I'd be pleased with. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the roasting tin books.
0: So good. So by Rukmini Aya, wonderful. I yeah, just love my are. quick roasting tin book. They
6: really are. I think people that are given or buy those books actually use them. They're one of the absolute guarantees i Mm. i I love mine and i give them a lot um i also really enjoyed fleischman is in trouble by taffy akna Brudessa.
0: ah that one of our earlier guests picked that as well i said that you're always trying to get me to read it telling me it's very funny
6: it's very funny and um you know it's very now as well i think that's always nice also i think the costa shortlists are great Mm. and i think the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize shortlist not just the winner which was with me <laughs> but the shortlist um, which included Roddy Doyle and um, Lyssa Evans and others that's a good Some good good gifts in there. Yeah, because they're funny. It's nice. I think we need funny books Mm -hmm. at the moment.
0: So I want to ask you something because I um, said earlier on on this programme and I really believe it, I think a book token is a really good gift. It's certainly a really good gift for me. I really like getting them. Um, But I think you might have a different view about the appropriateness of vouchers Mm. as presents.
6: Yeah, I've always been a bit against gift vouchers and tokens unless it's sort of a proposal of marriage or sex. (laughs) Or, you know, I'll clean your car for you inside and out. Mm -hmm. But, I yeah, I think they're a bit boring. I I'm, I hate to say it about book tokens because, of course, it's, you know, money in the bank. And I did quite like it when people gave my children book tokens mm-hmm. when they were little because it forced them to spend their money on books. I'm a bit against tokens. I think they're a bit boring. Sorry. <laughs> Although, actually, for me, it would probably be Better than the gifts that people actually give me. So I thought
0: it might be a solution.
6: Yeah, maybe a solution, but I'd just lose it. That's the thing. I wouldn't actually. So that's very good for booksellers, isn't it? That somebody will buy the token, I wouldn't actually spend it. (laughs) That's actually a very good thing on this podcast to say. So get everyone book tokens and hope they lose them. (laughs) So they have to buy the books they want with their own money. So yeah, Double bubble. Exactly.
0: How to keep the high street strong and vibrant. Yes. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us, Nina. And happy Christmas.
6: Happy Christmas to you.
0: And so now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel for Meet the Indie. He'll be talking to Andy Rossiter.
7: Thanks, Cathy. And yeah, Andy Rossiter. Rossiter Books. Are you there, Andy?
8: I am. Oh I well, am
7: not. well, that's good. So Andy, sort of tell us, Rossiter books. You are. I know from the name that it's Ross on Why, but you're going to tell me it's got nothing to do with the fact that your name and Rossiter and Ross on Y are all the same thing.
8: No, yeah, no, nothing to do with that at all. Just just happens that we uh, we live between Monmouth and uh, and Ross on Why, and obviously yeah, Rossiter is uh, is our surname. So uh, when we set it up, we thought uh, thought thought, thought we call it that.
7: Now hold on, sec. you've got. Two shops or three shops? Three
8: shops. So we opened um, in Ross on Wye uh, in April 2010, uh, and then a year and a half later in Monmouth in uh, 2011, over the border in Wales. And then last year in August we opened uh, up in Lempster, up in North Herefordshire.
7: Is this a bold and crazy move, Andy, or you, uh, the shop's doing so well that you are going to take over the world and you know soon you'll be rivaling Waterstones, or
8: what? I don't think we'll be rivaling Waterstones anytime soon. But no, no, I think it's um, you know I'm, I'm one of those sort of ex-Waterstones contingent. Uh, so sort of started life with Waterstones back in uh, eighty eight, October eighty eight, in fact. Same day as, uh, as Patrick, uh, your, your, one of kidding. your previous podcasters. Yeah, same so day. So
7: Pat- Patrick Neil of Jaffee and Neil.
8: Exactly, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we joined on the same day in Waterstones in Bath. He had been an ex-training manager for Waterstones so, uh, for, uh, for Sainsbury's and, uh, and so had I, but we, we hadn't known each other. So, uh, yeah, just one of those um, This is strange so coincidences.
7: This is like some Gwyneth Paltrow film.
8: I know, I know.
7: So 1988, did you go straight into um, Waterstones? Was that your kind of first job?
8: Uh, no, I was, uh, yeah, training manager for Sainsbury's beforehand really didn't, uh, suit me. So I kind of had about six, seven months of that and then bailed out originally only joined Wardstone's in Bath for two weeks while they moved and set up their, uh, their new store in Bath. They, they used to have a very small store at the top of Milsom street in Bath and they were moving to much bigger premises and, um, yeah, stayed there and, you know, just loved it. Wow. April 2010, myself and uh, my wife, Victoria, opened in Ross-on-Wye. There's two really expensive parts to opening your own bookshop, which is obviously, uh, you know, the the stock and the fixtures. Um, We had been sort of researching indies and setting up indies for about a year beforehand. And then uh, while I was running the Waterstones in Cardiff, uh, Borders, the chain, went under. And they'd opened a, a very new store um, in Cardiff, less than a year old, uh, about three doors away from me. So I made an off to the receiver and managed to get about two stores worth, bookcases and, um, and tables and, and things, very and wow. expensive things like um, acrylics for, uh, for use with um, children's picture books and things like that. So we got a really good start in that we were able to, to very cheaply set up those uh, first two bookstores. Oh, what a
7: brilliantly cunning way of doing things. So tell us about – I know where you are um, (laughs) because my parents, who always seem to get mentioned on the podcast, are not a million miles away up in Shropshire – and I've I've certainly been to Monmouth. Tell people who don't know the area what what sort of what sort of towns are they? What sort of shops are they?
8: Yeah, I mean Ross and Monmouth, both in the Wye Valley, which is a beautiful part of uh, of the country, just on the Welsh border. They're market towns yeah. around sort of ten to thirteen thousand population. All, all three of them are, are, are around that, and they're you know reasonably uh, affluent market towns with quite big rural hinterlands. So. Um, uh, a lot of villages, so you sort of come in and uh, and, and use them for shopping. Um, and in all three locations, we the the main competition for us on the high street would be uh, at WH Smiths. So there was uh, no no sort of real existing independents in those uh, in those locations. And in fact, in Lemster, our last one, I think there the last independent had closed around eight or nine years ago, and uh, and had been much missed. So. Uh, we got uh, a very, very good reaction indeed when we when we opened there recently.
7: And I'm tempted to say, and we'll go on to the books in the tech, but before we do so, I'm tempted to say that old kind of yes, prime minister thing, uh, you've been very brave, opening shops almost willy-nilly like the way you have, Andy. Did,
8: did it feel brave at the time? It did. In April 2010, I mean, we were kind of mid-financial crash, really. And well, that's um, it. But I think the reality of that situation was that at that particular point, you could go to a landlord and say, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't like the the uh, the price you've put on this uh, location. I don't think it's realistic. And there was a, quite a lot of bargaining that could be done. So I think in those first two stores, we were able to do that and sort of bargain down. And because of the way we'd done the fixtures and fittings, we felt we, we, we'd gone in, in in a particularly low risk way and not laden ourselves with uh, lots and lots of debt. And because I'd been immersed in Waterstones and that sort of events culture of the very early Waterstones in particular, we knew the kind of vibrant independent that we wanted to set up, uh, you know, that would be be very heavy with events uh, as well. Um, And we knew that just throwing open our doors was um, not going to drag people in. It would need more than that. And I think the locations that we set up in typically, I mean, Monmouth has got a couple of theatres, but ross on Wy and Lempster, for example, are, are not places where you would have sort of permanent theatres or even cinemas. So I think they were very appreciative of the fact that of us sort of bringing authors in and, um, and being a location as well, for example, where we would sell tickets for temporary theatres or part-time theatres. So we became a, a, you know, very much a cultural centre there. Yeah,
7: and I think that's what a lot of bookshops are now finding or indeed local councils hopefully are recognising is that, that bookshops bring a lot of value to the high street uh, there's a sort of
8: cultural uh, hub cultural yeah. hub we'll call yeah. it that
7: and events are they still important for you and I, I kind of know the answer to this question you've got sophie hannah coming in soon i think haven't
8: you yeah we have yeah, we have and we you know we just had rick stein and oh, yeah wow. no they they they're, they're fantastic for us you know big big and small i think they they keep it really really vibrant
7: Rick and Sophie are obviously selling well. What what else is selling well? What's going through the tills at the moment?
8: Um, yeah, the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse, I think it's working well for, uh, for for everybody.
7: Now, tell me a bit more about that, because I've heard lots and lots of mentions of it, and I've seen it in, in windows. Uh, I mean, apart from the fact it looks gorgeous, what is it, is it? Children's book, adult book, what?
8: I think it's a bit of both, but I think it is mainly for adults. I think uh, Charlie Mackesy apparently had done these sketches and originally done them uh, o- online, but it's just um, you know it's a beautiful book that gently tells the story of this uh, of this boy uh, kind of meeting the mole and the fox and the horse, and just has has just sort of words like "be kind" and just. You know, it's a a very easy going sort of mindful full book, mm-hmm. uh, and and really seems to have hit people. I had to, one customer who bought a copy from us, and within the week was phoning up and saying, "Look, I'd like four more to um, to, to, to to give to family," and um, it just really seems to have, uh, have caught on. I mean, other ones for us. There's a um, a book called Down in the Valley, a writer's landscape, which is a beautiful hardback from Penguin. Uh, from Laurie Lee, where he uh, has written about the uh, the Slad Valley in the Cotswolds, um, and apparently has never been uh, published before, but that's kind of riding really high in our uh, our bestseller list as well.
7: Now, is that local to you? I'm, I should know. It's my...
8: yeah, off to one side, yeah, yeah, but reasonably local yeah. to us, yes, yes.
7: Well, that sounds a terrific thing. And both of those, in in some ways, and this, I think this is the nice thing, isn't it, a you know, slightly unexpected hit.
8: Yeah, I think so, yeah. They both uh, are for us. And although I, I say, you know, we've got lots of signed copies selling as well, uh, the, the, the other trend that we've kind of noticed is the royal biographies, which I had not expected. I don't think we've previously done particularly well, with any, but the two that are working as well, well for us at the moment, are uh, the Lady in Waiting by Anne Glenconnor.
7: She was on Graham Norton a while well, back. Well, that, wasn't that she did also. it. I Fantastic. mean, I, I
8: don't know if you saw that, but she rather stole the show with, <laughs> she her, last, stole the show. <laughs> with her last fifteen minutes there, and that that just was extraordinary, uplifting sales after she appeared there. And I think she was also on his uh, Radio Two um, show. And the other one that's doing well is the the other side of the coin, the Queen, the dresser, and the wardrobe. By Angela Kelly is um, is the other one that's that's uh, riding high for us. And I say think we, it's because not- of the
0: Crown, Andy, isn't it?
8: I think so. Uh, uh, yeah, because yeah, I think people
0: think so? watch the Crown and then want to know. M- more and they want the background and stuff. I
8: think yeah, I think particularly with the Princess Margaret stuff that uh, is currently uh, is on there. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that's uh, that that that's the no. driving force.
7: No, I think it's more fundamental. I think it. Was Monmouth was a royalist area in the Civil War. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've seen <laughs> you that castle. it goes solid. back to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People hold on to these things for a long time. That's right. Um, there's, there's there's a long memory. And if a customer, n- not a local, uh, was coming into into the shop if Cathy was arriving you know, yes. you know, and you didn't recognise her um,
8: what, impossible
7: obviously. Undercover. <laughs> yeah. if, if I was impossible, undercover obviously. in Rossiter um, <laughs> um, Cathy, <laughs> mystery shop at Rensinbury, arrived so, so what are you going to be pushing to, in her direction?
8: Yeah, you know, I think the book I've probably pushed most often uh, this year has been *The Song of Achilles* by Madeline Miller, which I which I absolutely love, and it's partly off the back of the current, uh, you know, the the those sort of Greek myths and uh, are going so well, and so many people buying things like Pat Barker and Stephen Fry with his *Mythos and Heroes* series that, that I think a lot of people don't know uh, about it so much, and and I absolutely love that *Song of Achilles*. Um, uh, so I I would be pushing that and that's but lots of people in my team as well have um really enjoyed that and inevitably of course if they read that they'll go on to read *Cersei*, the uh, the one from this year which has been a terrific seller for us as well uh, and also, was you know what *Cersei* is a beautiful book I know it was on the uh books of my bag shortlist for most beautiful book uh and and they really did a fantastic job of uh of uh, putting a lovely cover on that book
7: as well. Yeah, no, it's a great cover. And um, a beautifully snuck-in mention of books in my bag there. Brilliantly done. Yes, um, yes, Now, let me throw you a slightly tricky one because kind of over Christmas when I've got a bit more time, I, I know the sort of books I normally read, but I'm thinking crime and thriller books, and I, you know, I've given you no advance warning on this.
8: Well, you know, if you came into my shop, I would I would push a Matthew Hall book on you. He's, uh, he writes as M.R. Hall. And he's Y Valley based, um, but he always does well every time he brings out one of his Jenny Cooper series, of which there's been about I think six or seven now. Uh, and it's the question we get most often. Actually, he hasn't bought one out for um, maybe a couple of years now, but we keep getting asked, you know, when is Matthew Hall going to produce another book? So I'd probably push one of you, one of uh, one of his, The Coroner series uh on you if you have not tried it. Yeah. Uh, no, but he's I got haven't. a new he, he he's become a bit more famous now because he wrote the um script for keeping faith, um, which was uh a real uh I think it was the the most downloaded iPlayer thing ever where people had uh, had, uh originally missed it. Or I think maybe it had been on BBC Wales originally first and then was Re-shown. But he's got a new a new book and a new series out in April called The Black Art of Killing, which we are <laughs> really jolly. looking forward That's to. It's a
0: great title.
8: Yeah. I don't
7: know whether it is or not. I feel a bit edgy <laughs> about it now. Um,
0: well, yeah, you maybe don't want to put it in your. Suitcase. No. <laughs> well, I'm I'm you, can, it's you can
8: start with the coroner, and that yeah, will that will that right. will then get you. Did you say you it was know. the Jenny Cooper? Series? Jenny Cooper yeah. is, is the is the is the coroner, and uh, yeah, lives in the Y Valley, but travels to kind of north of Bristol to. To do her daily work, <laughs> she, yeah. she's
7: really pushing out the distance travelled there. Yeah, north no, of Preston, well, it's
8: got much cheaper for her now with the toll going off
7: <laughs> so. I mean, Andy, I, I mean, I don't think we'd better hold on to you for very much longer because Christmas is the busiest time of year. Well, I hope it's the busiest time of year for you. Is it? Are the the crowds starting to form?
8: They are. They are. I think uh, after a um, uh, sort of uh, Brexit-induced slight sort of coma and flatness in sort of October and early November, it really feels like it's lifted off. And it it has lifted off big time for us now. We've, we've, We've found in the last two weeks in particular that we've got huge increases. And it's for us at the moment as well, fingers crossed, it seems... Better than last year, which is uh, which is terrific.
7: Yeah, and you sort of keep going. You know, this this really is the local ad for you guys. You know, when are you open till? When can people still buy their last-minute stocking fillers? Well, from
8: we're you? open on Christmas Eve. We only close for uh, Christmas Day and Boxing Day, and then open again. So, no, we we are there and ready, and hopefully with uh, with tills ringing.
7: Well, that's fantastic. So, anyone local to any of your three shops head on down to Andy and Victoria's shops and if you're heading that way for Christmas do the same you open till Christmas Eve absolutely fantastic Andy thank you so much I know it's a crazy busy time and you know you having three shops must be insane for you but um, thanks so much best of luck for Christmas and, and thanks so much for talking to us
8: thank you for having me
7: all right
0: So now let's get out and about. Now, as I remember very well from my 10 years in bookselling, there does come a point in December when there aren't really events because all you're doing is selling books as fast as you can. But Nigel, you've been scouring book gig for us. What have you got for us in the way of events?
7: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There aren't as many as normal months, but there are a couple and there are a couple of standout ones, I think. The 14th of December, so really working right up to the end, in Rankin, up in St Andrews, Talking about uh, Westwind, his new book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, Ian Rankin, national treasure, surely. Yeah, national Ian Rankin's treasure amazing. of two countries.
0: And do you know what as well? He's a very nice man. No, and he's tell a lovely bloke. That when I was back at Waterstones, one of my last Christmas events one year was uh, Ian Rankin at Waterstones Piccadilly and I had to introduce him. And I was so ill and overtired that I'd completely lost my voice. And then I had to leave the room because I was coughing so hard. And he was just so nice about it all. He was so kind to me.
7: Oh, now I go. remember, yeah, he was talking about that weird bookseller back from the you know, <laughs> Oh, um, uh, this woman uh, uh, just kept coughing all over me. Coughing. No, he was just,
0: he was so incredibly nice. Yeah. So there you
7: go. Well, everyone says it. I mean, that is the national treasure thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Everyone says it. Ian Rankin, lovely bloke. And from one good bloke to another, Adam Kaye. He is working all the way through up to Christmas. I mean, incredible the number of gigs he's doing. Uh, he's in Liverpool on, I think, the 15th of December. And just scrolling down now, he's in Guildford on the 18th. He's in Hull. He's in Salford. I mean, he's scammed in the country fantastic effort by him and that's talking about the night shift before christmas So, I'm sure very he'd be, yeah
0: i'm sure he'd be the first person to point out that even doing all that hard work he won't be working as hard as the nhs doctors and nurses will be thank you christmas. that is a public service announcement so, uh, from <laughs> yes as he makes the point very well in towards the night shift before yeah, christmas and absolutely. some very good advice about how we could support health workers at this time of the year But we should be nice to everyone, shouldn't we? Hardworking booksellers, everybody. I think being nice to retail workers as well at Christmas is another really important thing. So maybe we should leave everyone with that aspiration to be Uh, kind all round, peace and goodwill in general. That's it for now. I hope the festive period brings you everything that you desire. Our next podcast will be in January 2020. Who knows where we'll be by then? Thanks to Bernadine Evaristo, Nina Stibby, Andy Rossiter, Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at the bookseller.com. And we would be extremely grateful if you felt inclined to leave us a review, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And now, Here is a clip from The Beast of Buckingham Palace by David Walliams. The nanny is played by Joanna Lumley. And that will end the December edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading.
1: Chapter 7. The Room With No Door. The old lady grabbed the prince by the hand so we were standing right next to her at the library fireplace. Before Alfred could ask Nanny what she was doing, she turned the little hand of the gold carriage clock on top of the fireplace anti-clockwise. Whoa! As if by magic, the pair were spun into another room. Whoosh
6: I never knew this room was here
1: hissed Alfred. Shush. Shush, Nanny.
7: They still might hear us.
1: They listened out for voices in the library next door as they stood in a tiny windowless room full of junk. There was a rusty metal bath, a broken bicycle, a dog-chewed cricket bat, a weather-beaten picnic basket, a mouldy croquet set, and a battered old Victorian pram with a wonky wheel. Alfred had been all over the palace, but he had never been in here, hardly surprising as the room had no door.
6: Is this
4: a secret room?
1: He whispered. Shush! Shushed Nanny. There were a couple of old chipped cut glass tumblers on a side table. Nanny picked one up and passed the other to the boy. She then placed the top of the tumbler to the wall and the bottom to her ear. Alfred followed suit. Next door they could hear someone pacing around the library. Who was it? What were they looking for? Whoever it was, and whatever they were looking for, at last it sounded as if they'd found it. After a short while, the pair heard the library door close. They were safe, for now.
0: In answer to your question, my little prince,
1: began Nanny,
0: legend has it that there are many secret rooms and passages all over Buckingham Palace. I know of just a few. They must have been built here during World War II. Yes, for the royal family back then, in case that stinker Hitler invaded. King George VI. Oh, my little prince, you've been reading all those books piled up in your bedroom. History books are my favourite. I know.
4: George VI had a wife and two daughters. The elder one became Elizabeth II.
0: Full marks, clever clogs. Elizabeth II. What a ruler she was. We'll never see her like again.
1: Prince Alfred, who was next in line to the throne, nodded his head sorrowfully. He knew more than anyone of his failings. If only he could be more like the great kings and queens of the past. But nature had played him a cruel trick. He was a sickly child. All of a sudden, Alfred thought he saw something move under an old dust sheet. With his eyes, he indicated the pile. Nanny mimed. What? Whatever it was, moved again. Nanny nodded and began tiptoeing over to the sheet. The boy stayed close behind, holding onto her cardigan for dear life. The sheet rose into the air. It looked like a ghost. Alfred wanted to scream but didn't dare make a sound. The thing stretched out its arms. Nanny reached out her hand and closed her eyes. She couldn't bear it either. With one hand, she whipped off the sheet to reveal...